Would you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 19? John chapter 19. We're going to read verses 23 through 27. John 19, we're going to pick up with verse 23. As you're turning, let me just say, this week, in some level, I have been involved in the death and funerals of three men. And let me just point out, I said three men, not three women. So, okay. Although every man was, is a different person, different family dynamics, different everything, there are similarities between each one. The first is the families are always talking about last words, last conversations, last time we saw them. The other thing that they discuss is what do we do now? What do we do now that they're gone? What do we do now that I'm the only one left? How do I handle all the stuff that I have to take care of without them here? Where do I turn now that everybody else is gone? When it's closing time, the last call has been made and the lights are cut and cut off. What do you do when you're the only one left? That's what I want to pick up today in our sermon in a sentence. God will do right when everyone else is left. God will do right when everyone else is left. Let's pray. We'll jump in. Heavenly Father, you say those who walk in darkness Trust in the Lord. You tell us that in the darkness your word is a light into our path and a lamp into our feet. Let it be that in these dark times we live in. Help us, Father, to see the path before us as you have revealed it to us in your word. Help us to trust you as you lead and guide us. Help us to do that now. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 23. Hear the word of the Lord. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom, so that they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word. How do we define the word Righteous. What does it mean to say that something is right? 
Today, the popular mantra is, might makes right. Might makes right. Whoever's the strongest gets to determine what rules we play the game with. However, anyone who's ever watched a three-year-old try to put a square peg in a round hole realizes might does not make right. Might makes right takes far too much energy and does far too much harm. That can't be it. Others define right as preference. What I hear the young folks say is, you do you and I'll do me. Right is preference. However, we all know that's a load of baloney. How many times does somebody do something wrong and we as a collective say, that ain't right. That ain't right. So obviously right's not preference. For us, righteousness means according to a fixed rule in which it fits exactly. It's according to a rule. You can't be more right or less right. You're either right or you aren't. Period. For God, Petrus and Maastricht says that God acts according to the uprightness of His nature. That God is righteousness Himself. And our fixed rule flows from His fixed righteousness. His character. God can't be perfect if He's not righteous. He can't be perfect if He's crooked, impure, deceitful, corrupt. God, what I'm trying to say is, God will always do what is right. And we base our life off that. But that brings me to a question that I have to ask. How do I know? How do I know? I really have a pet peeve when people have to tell me they're a hard worker. Don't tell me you're a hard worker. Show me you're a hard worker. In the same way, God can tell me that He will do what's right, but I want Him to show me. In our passage, He shows us that He will do right when everyone else is left. We see that in Jesus Christ. Let's look at our passage. Jesus does what is right, for He keeps His word. Notice that when John speaks of the tearing of His garments and the gambling for His tunic, John says He did this to fulfill the Scripture. To fulfill the Scripture. Every gospel account includes this piece, and everyone says He did it to fulfill the Scripture. They're bearing witness to Christ's righteousness. Now you may say, Zach, how does this bear witness to Christ's righteousness? Well, I'll tell you. When I was on the chamber, I was told never make a phone call to the county. Always send an email. Why? You had to have a paper trail. 
to prove that you actually communicated to them. Or how many times do somebody send a text message and we screenshot it for evidence as if their word is not enough? There used to be a day when that was different. Men would sell land based on a handshake and a verbal agreement. Men would marry off their daughters based on a word. There was a day when men kept their word at great personal cost. Christ gave His word. Christ kept His word. First Peter says that the Spirit of Christ was working in the authors of the Old Testament to tell of Christ's sufferings and subsequent glory. So when we read John, John quotes Psalm 22. Yes, Psalm 22 is written by David and is written of David, but ultimately it's written of Christ by Christ. It tells us, it prophesies what Christ would do for us. The Old Testament is His Word to us where He makes promises of what He will do. And He does them. Over and over, John says, Jesus did this to fulfill the Scripture. The book of Matthew, Jesus did this to fulfill the Scripture. Jesus Himself says, I didn't come to abolish the Scripture. I came to fulfill the Scripture. Or we could say, He came to fulfill His Word. Heaven and earth may pass away, but His Word will not. The fulfilling of every promise of Scripture testifies that Jesus is a man of His Word. That He will do what is right. But along with keeping his word, we also see in our passage, Jesus kept the law. Now which law, you ask? The fifth commandment. Honor thy father and thy mother. We see surrounding the cross of Jesus Christ, who is there? His mother, Mary. If anyone had an excuse for failing to care for his mother, it was Jesus. He kind of had a lot going on that day, didn't he? Every breath he took, every broken syllable he uttered, brought to him a world of excruciating pain. If there was ever a moment the law should be relaxed, it's this one. And yet, the law does not give a pass. It does not give mulligans. The law demands personal, perpetual, perfect obedience. Personal as in, you got to do it yourself. Perpetual as in, there is never a point in time and when it's relaxed. Perfect as in, you keep it to the nth degree. Personal, perpetual, perfect. That is what Jesus gave. Notice Jesus did not give His mother the bare minimum. He did not give her the cheapest option so He could keep the law. 
No. He entrusted her to John. John was the disciple that leaned upon Jesus at the Last Supper. John was a disciple with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. John was the only disciple with him at the cross. He entrusted his mother to his most faithful and trustworthy disciple. To be loved by him who loved Jesus most dearly. With those famous words, Behold your son, behold your mother, Jesus provided the best of care. Jesus kept the law. He brought honor to it. But in His keeping, do we not stand condemned? Do we not see the horrors of our sin? Adam's in a well-watered garden. He's well-fed. He's in great physical shape. He's in a perfect place. I have a feeling the Garden of Eden was 70 degrees with less than 50% humidity and rain on a regular basis. It's perfect. Perfect. God gave him a law and Adam consented. Adam said, I'll do it. And he did not. He sinned. He sinned. He transgressed God's law. Exodus 19 God gives them a law. And Israel gives them His Word. He says, we'll do it. Twelve chapters later, they're making a golden calf. They transgressed God's law. We are no better. We're no better. And our comfort, where Jesus in His suffering cared for His mother, in our comfort, we failed to care for our own parents and to show them the same honor to those that most tender and affectionate relationship because we didn't make, the bitterness we didn't relinquish, the gratitude we never gave. And yet that's simply one area. How much else of God's Word do we let go to the wayside because we're tired? Because we've had a long day. Because God, you don't know what I've been through. We do not relax God's law because we're weary. We break God's law because we're sinners. And yet, God is gracious. In Genesis 3, when Adam sinned, when he broke the law, he was covered in guilt and shame. And yet God took him outside the garden. He killed an animal and he clothed him. God did not set aside the law. God made a promise. In Exodus, they sinned. God covered them with the blood of sacrifice. He gave them Leviticus, a book of promises that He would send His Son who would clothe them with His righteousness, who would bleed and die for their pardon. And thus we see it in our passage. Adam is clothed. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, is naked. Adam is spared. Jesus is not. 
He has fulfilled the righteousness of the law. He has borne its penalty that we may be clothed for every call we didn't make, for every letter we didn't send, for every conversation we didn't have, for every failure to keep the fifth commandment and all the others, Jesus bled and died. Personally, perpetually, perfectly He kept the law. Perfectly He suffered for us. Jesus did what was right by His Word. He did what was right by the law. He did what was right by us. We know, we have seen, He is righteous. But how does that help us in our time of need? How does that help us? We have some concrete illustrations in our passage. How does it help John, who's being abandoned by his best friend? How does it help John? How does it help Mary, watching her son? Her son. In that day and age, your son was your 401k, your social security. It was how you were cared for when you grew older. And here is her son dying. How does this help Mary? How does this help Jesus, who in just a few verses will cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Each one abandoned. Haven't we all dealt with that abandonment? That sense of sorrow and dread? May it be a sudden illness? May it be a family member ripped from us? May it be a wayward child that we cannot pull in? May it be a sin that has overcome us. Have we not felt that deep, dark night of despair? The Christian life is not a sunny side of affair. The Puritans, who wrote some of the greatest works on assurance of salvation, often quoted Isaiah 50 verse 10. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon His God. That was a verse I read to a dying man this week whose eyes had not been opened in days but was cognizant of what was going on. Dark place. Can't see a good ending in this. But trust that God will do what is right even when there's no one left. Trusting in God means hope, not despair. Hope is that sure and certain anticipation that God will keep His Word even when we don't see how it's possible. Let's just zoom in on Mary for a minute. A.W. Pink says this, She 
It was her who first planted kisses on the brow now crowned with thorns. It was she who guided those hands and feet in their first moments that are now pinned to the cross. No mother ever suffered as she did. His disciples may desert him. His friends may forsake him. His nation may despise him. But his mother stands there at the foot of the cross. Who can fathom that mother's heart? Can you fathom the sword piercing her soul in this moment? Can you, can you fathom the darkness enveloping her heart? And yet, what do we see out of Mary? Mary is the last one to leave the cross. She's first one to the tomb. Not the disciples. Not the Jewish nation. Mary. She had hope. Hope is the assurance of things we cannot see. She had hope. She, is not, she doesn't have a plan B. She doesn't have another option. Plan B distracts from plan A. Plan B breeds despair. Plan A produces hope. It was dark for Mary, and yet she kept her eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, remembering His words, remembering His promise, remembering the righteousness of His actions. He fulfilled every promise. And she looks at him and says, Do it again. Do it again. We who walk in darkness, we trust in the Lord and we say, Lord, you've done it once. You spoke and said, Let there be light in the eternal darkness. You pulled us from the darkness of bondage in Egypt. You pulled us from the deadness and darkness of sin. Lord, do it again. Trusting in God is hope, not despair. Trusting in God is waiting, not idleness. Let's not get these two things confused. Waiting and idleness are two different things. Psalm 27 says, Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. You see those words, strength, courage? We like the path of least resistance. That's idleness. I used to go, I used to lose my cool when I, an employee would call me and say, can you give me a hand? I'd say, I'll be there in 15 minutes. And you know what they did for that 15 minutes? They played on their phone. There's one million things that could have been done while they waited on me, but they played on their phone. You know what you call that? Idleness. Waiting is doing all things within your power until God can do that thing you cannot. Over and over the Psalms say this. Wait and refrain from anger. As in, wait 
Do everything else you can do. Let the Lord take care of them. Prepare your sacrifices and wait. Don't ask God to do something and then try to do it for Him. Pray, ask Him. Wait. Wait on the Lord. Keep His way. That doesn't mean give up on on the Lord's work and do something different. It means continue and persist in what He's given you. Waiting is an activity. We wait on the Lord to do what is right and we continue doing right in other areas. They used to say, labor is the husband of hope. Continue to pray. Continue to seek. Continue to be obedient. Continue to wait. Continue to do what God has revealed until He makes clear what He is not. There's an evangelist. He thought he was smart. He just got out of seminary. And he's going through a farming community. There's an old farmer hunched over picking tobacco. The evangelist was ready. He walks up to the farmer and says, Farmer, what would you do if Jesus was coming back in 15 minutes? The farmer said, I finished this row. A hot-headed evangelist got a little frustrated. And so he said, well, don't you need to get ready? Without stopping, the farmer said, what I need to do is what God has commanded and trust God to do what He has promised. The farmer was waiting, but he was not idle. Jesus told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the Spirit to be poured out. They did not go to an upstairs apartment and twiddle their thumbs for three days. What were they seen doing? They were praying. They were waiting. Trusting in the Lord is waiting, not idleness. Church, that's our sermon in a nutshell. Trusting in the Lord means walking in His ways even when you don't know where they lead. To obey His voice when His voice is all you have because you know He will always do what is right. Princes die. Nations falter. Economies bankrupt. But with Joshua we can say not one word of all the promises the Lord has made have failed. Every one of them has come to pass. Church, we find ourselves in dark times. Be it connected to the three families that have lost loved ones within the last week or two. Be the estate of our country and the rising godliness, ungodliness. Or be it our own fights with sin and temptation and Satan itself. What do we do when we see nowhere to go? We trust in the Lord. He will do right. Always, every time. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray to You and to no other. For You are the only one who is just and upright 
perfect in all your ways. You are the rock of ages that never moves, never changes. You are dependable above all else. You're faithful. Lord, we lean upon your righteousness today. As those who have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ, we know you are a God who keeps your word. Father, would you help us to store it in our heart that we may lean upon it at all times and in it find much hope. Father, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.